Good morning. Pakistan's ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan speaks. The UN supports Cuba against the US. Veterans Day, a report from Moscow, and Republicans rumble after botched midterms. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Monday morning, November 14th, 2022. An explosion on a busy street in Istanbul on Sunday killed six people and injured 43 after the explosion struck a thoroughfare popular with tourists. Bodies could be seen lying on the street as rescuers attempted to help the wounded. Turkish President Recep Erdogan called the blast a treacherous attack and says its perpetrators would be punished. He didn't say who was behind the attack, but said it had the smell of terror. The Turkish government imposed restrictions on social media, posting video of the explosion, and restricted access to Twitter. French President Emmanuel Macron noted that the Istanbul attack came exactly seven years after Islamic State extremists killed 130 people at Paris cafes, the Bataclan Theater, and France's National Stadium. Dozens of world leaders and other dignitaries are traveling to Bali for the G20 summit. Tourism is the main source of income on this idyllic island of the gods that's home to more than 4 million people who are mainly Hindu in the mostly Muslim archipelago nation. But the island's tourist-driven economy took a deep hit due to the COVID pandemic. Its economy is contracted by nearly 10%. Meanwhile, the group of 20 members begins talks Tuesday under the hopeful theme of Recover Together, Recover Stronger, Russian President Vladimir Putin is staying away. President Joe Biden will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping and get to know new British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Italy's Giorgia Maloney. In related news, the International Monetary Fund is forecasting a 2.7% global growth for 2023, while private sector economists' estimates are as low as 1.5%, down from 3% this year, the slowest growth rate since the oil crisis of the early 1980s. A week after gunmen fired on Pakistan's ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan, shooting him three times in the leg, the former cricketer and outspoken political outsider sat down with interviewer Piers Morgan for a revealing discussion about the shooting. Khan says he was hit three times, but a heroic individual managed to deflect a second gunman. Still, one of the bullets shattered his shin bone, and Khan says it'll be a long time before he's healed. Despite that, Khan says he's determined to continue his push for new elections, as his popularity among Pakistanis has soared. Khan insists he was the victim of a conspiracy hatched by Pakistan's current leaders. This uh, pistol, which was on automatic, and when it went down, it hit my leg. So when I fell, there was another shooter in front, and when he fired, the bullets went over me. So as I was falling... These bullets were going over me. Only you, Imran, could be slightly smiling as you tell this story. I mean, to me, this sounds utterly horrifying. This is two people trying to kill you. Uh, it was a plot. Look, uh, Piers, I told you when I spoke to you in June that there was this plot. Why did they want to kill me? Because when the whole conspiracy to change my government and uh, and this regime change, uh, they expected that the party would just wither away or it'll take years for it to recover. In fact, what happened was that unprecedented public reaction, and you had uh, millions of people coming on the streets the next day to protest against the regime change. So I think from then onwards, 
what they expected was that my popularity or my party would go down. In fact, it went up. That's when my life became, uh, uh, came in danger. The second plot was as I was falling, when the bullets hit my leg and I fell and these bullets went over my head, and I, then I felt my body, because when, I was, when the shooting stopped, I felt sort of where, and I felt my leg was hit, it was numb, but I checked my top body. Then I realized that the Almighty had saved me, because there's no way I should have been saved, because there were two shooters, one very close, 20 feet, the other one right in the building in front. There's no way I should have survived it. The leadership of Pakistan has denied any involvement in the assassination attempt against Imran Khan. Khan stopped short of directly blaming the United States for the attempt on his life. He says the U.S. treats Pakistan like slaves. Pakistan and U.S. relationship has been like a transactional master-slave relationship. When Pakistan is needed, you know, we serve a purpose and then uh, and we degrade ourselves. By the way, I don't blame the U.S. that much. I think we allow ourselves to be used like a tissue paper. And it's humiliating as a Pakistani. We got independence at the same time as India. India has you know, a very dignified relationship with the US. Every country wants to protect its interests. But what Pakistan has done is we've been like slaves. We've been used, like for instance, the war on terror. Pakistan had nothing to do with 9-11. The, with the head of the, uh, our state, claimed that they were forced into this war by the U.S. because the U.S. would bomb us into Stone Age. We ended up losing 80,000 Pakistanis in a war that had nothing to do with us. So that's what I object to. I want a relationship like India has with the U.S. Pakistan's ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan, he survived an assassination attempt about two weeks ago. He's been pushing for new elections in a divided Pakistan. Last week, the United Nations General Assembly rebuked the decades-long U.S. embargo against Cuba. On Thursday, 185 countries voted in favor of a non-binding resolution condemning the embargo, with the United States and Israel voting against, and Brazil and Ukraine abstaining. The Obama administration has eased tension with the island nation, but his successor, Donald Trump, reinstated and stepped up the sanctions. Biden has stayed by the Trump policies, but taken a handful of steps to relax some restrictions. Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez accused the Biden administration of continuing down a path of maximum pressure. What would Cuba be like today had it had those resources? What else could we have done? What would our economy be? It's impossible to quantify the anxiety generated by blackouts and instability in the power system, supply shortages and long queues to buy essential billion dollars at current prices. And based on the price of gold, they account for $1.391 trillion. Rodriguez says the U.S. blockade of Cuba is hurting the United States, too. When casting your votes, you would not only be taking a stand on a vital issue for Cuba and all Cubans. You will also be voting in favor of the United Nations Charter and international law. You will be taking a stand in support of reason and justice.
Let Cuba live in peace. Cuba would be better without the blockade. Every Cuban family would be better off without the blockade. United States citizens will be better off without the blockade. The United States would be a better country without the blockade against Cuba. The world would be better off without the blockade. U.S. representatives counter that the sanctions are a response to human rights abuses by the Cuban government, which cracked down on protests. About 400 people have been arrested in Cuba since the summer of 2021. U.S. Ambassador Kelly Kraft. You, you know, the ugliest part of, of today, this annual affair in the General Assembly, that people can peddle this fiction that the Cuban regime is powerless. I mean, just like that, they've got a choice that they can end the hunger, they can most certainly help the people there that are sick by allowing their physicians to heal the people in their own country and to allow the freedom of expression. And the U.S. will not take responsibility for the human rights abuses caused by the Cuban regime. Thank you so much. Thanks. Cuba says the United States is in no position to criticize human rights in other countries. And you're listening to the news. I'm Paul Durienzo. Friday marked the 104th anniversary of the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, when the last bullet was fired in what was then called the War to End All Wars. We know it as World War I. Millions died in the four-year European conflict, and in the United Kingdom, a newly restored Big Ben chimed 11 times before two minutes of silence was observed throughout the country. And a soldier played the trumpet call, the symbol of war, the world over. As we that are left grow old, age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. In the United States, we call it Memorial Day now. World War I was far from the end of war. It left unfinished issues that grew into an even bloodier conflict, World War II, 20 years later, that killed tens of millions more. The United States has been steadily at war since September 11, 2001. Today, Europe is again threatened by conflict, this time between Russia and Ukraine. A former United States Air Force Command Chief is Dennis Fritz. He was Senior Advisor to the Commander of Pacific Air Forces and current Director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Fritz spoke with the news about America's forever wars and how U.S. foreign policy drove Russia to the wall. Putin was giving us hints all along. Hey, listen, you need to stop expanding NATO. There was talk of Ukraine 
being a part of mm-hmm. NATO. I really think they felt that threat. We've been egging Ukraine on in this war. If you notice, up until recently, we have not been talking about a peaceful way out of this. It's more about providing more arms to Ukraine so that they can win this so-called war. Well, it's a proxy war. The Cold War really never ended because we kept it going. We always talked down on Russia you know, and saying, hey, you know, we're the, we're the only world power. I predict this years ago that uh, Russia and China will one day come together and call us out on that. And you know, we're seeing that coming to fruition right now. Now, let's talk about Veterans Day. When we talk about Veterans Day, you know, it's to honor all Americans that served in all wars. And when I said I'm anti-war, one of the things about about Veterans Day, we always hear, thank you for your service. Thank you for defending us. I'm always bothered by that because of the fact, yeah, we're going to have this one day where we're going to honor all our veterans of war. But it bothers me when I see homeless veterans or veterans having a hard time to get into the VA system in some areas. When we honor our veterans, it needs to be a daily thing where we're trying to support those that have fought in those wars. Another part about my um, resume, Paul, I will tell you, too. Mm-hmm. I retired in 2003 as a solid protest in Iraq war, but I didn't believe the people I was talking to about WMD. I just didn't think it was there, just from the intel I was seeing. Somehow, I ended up working in the Pentagon after I retired as a civilian back in the Pentagon, working for a guy named Doug Fife under Paul Wolfwich. And I was saying then, oh my goodness, he led us into this war. You know, when I think about veterans, I think about we should not be sending any of our young men and women off to war unless it's truly about the defense of our, our nation. Once we send them off to war, we need to take care of them always, not only on mm-hmm. Veterans Day. Paraphrasing Abraham Lincoln, just to wrap up, didn't he say something about the only real threat to America was within its own borders by its own people in a civil war? We're getting close to that, Paul. When we talk about after the 2020 election, never in my life would I have ever thought that we have American citizens attacking the Capitol. It was like when the Saddam came down. Other, when you have an insurrection or a coup. I was in the Philippines when Marcos came down. I never thought I would have seen anything like this in the United States of America. And it and looked like, you know, we talk about the terrorists, we talk about others, look like we're going to be torn down within. You know, you talk about veterans. I was talking to somebody today about a general I worked with, Tom McInerney, and then I think about Michael Flynn. These folks that were in the military, veterans, they were a part of almost taking down our country within. Think about They were that, like Paul. the tin pot generals of Greece in the 60s in the movie Z, or what happened in Chile in 72. It was, it was strangely reminiscent of what happened in those countries. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And so as I tell folks, we're not immune of our democracy going down. I would have never thought, as a person who served in the military for over 28 years and been around the military all my entire life, I would have never thought we would have seen anything as we saw then. Does that mean America is into exceptional anymore? I don't believe in exceptionalism. That's something we invented so that we could have our imperialistic takeover of the world because of the fact you say, hey, we're exceptional. We're the only ones that can preserve the world. Well, wait a minute now. We started a number of wars. You look at it, Paul, you know the history. You look at Iran. You know, they were a a democratic elected government uh, before the Shah went in there. You think about those things. Internally, we can be taken down within. It shows that we may not be as exceptional as we think we are, as we want to portray ourselves. I am really worried. I've never in my life have been worried about our democracy. And now we saw how close. Think about if uh, those folks would have had weapons. You know, I think I they mean, did. Far-fetched. Well, yeah, they did. With that said, though, let's say, for example, you know, we had all our members of Congress, both houses, right there in that one spot. Think if I would have let off a bomb. Unbelievably dangerous. And, and you ready for this? Trump, state of emergency, 
he could have set himself up to stay in the prison for years to come until we figure out what was going on, and, you know, he would have slow-walked everything. So that's how close. Think about that, Paul. That's how close we came to losing our democracy. And so that makes me think each and every day. You know, instead of us trying to worry about democracy around the world, we need to make sure ours is intact first because, like I said, and as you stated and alluded to earlier, we could fall within. Dennis Fritz is a former United States Air Force Command Chief. He spoke with the news on Memorial Day, known in the United Kingdom as Armistice Day. In news of the war in Ukraine, United States Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have been added to a list of 200 U.S. citizens banned from entering Russia for what the Kremlin says is the promotion of the Russophobia campaign and support for the regime in Kiev. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre Health Secretary Xavier Becerra, Politico Editor-in-Chief Matthew Kaminsky were also among those barred from entering Russia. They join over 1,000 other U.S. citizens forbidden from entering Russia indefinitely, a list that includes Hollywood actors Ben Stiller and Sean Penn. Meanwhile, the city of Genichesk has become the provisional seat of Russia's Kherson region after Ukrainian troops recaptured Kherson city. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu authorized the withdrawal of Russian troops from Kherson on Wednesday. In the city, citizens turned out to welcome entering Ukrainian soldiers. About 30,000 Russian troops moved to the opposite bank of the Dnieper River. The Russian military says the reason for the move? To save lives. Correspondent Dan Kovalik has been visiting Russia. He spoke with the news from Moscow. Kovalik says sanctions, war, military draft have not changed the pace of life in the Russian capital pretty quiet people going about their day you know going to work going to restaurants uh so i mean there's a feeling of normalcy here i guess that's probably the biggest takeaway Mm -hmm. uh you know the polls show strong support for the government at this point and for the special operations in ukraine in fact one guy told me that the the people who really oppose the special operations have left the country. So, you know, that kind of leaves it to the people who still support the government. Now, obviously, that's not entirely the case. But in any case, yeah, there's a feeling of normalcy here in Moscow. Any grumbling about the draft? Would... I didn't hear any uh, myself. Again, I think people who were really concerned about it left. Of course, they got volunteers as well. I mean, there were people who signed up voluntarily. Um, I think in the 40,000 people, maybe. So, no, I haven't heard that. Mm-hmm. And in what fact, a- most of the most of the mobilization is of people who are already in the reserves. That is. Just- How about the effect on the economy? Are the stores empty? Are they full of prices going out of control in the restaurants? Is there a sign of any sort of economic instability or other suffering brought upon by the sanctions? They're weathering the storm well, according to my observation. The stores are packed. I mean, they're full. I don't see any empty shelves. I would say things are on the pricier side, but I don't know, you know, what that compares to the past here in Moscow. I've been out to restaurants, and you can go you get a decent meal for a little over 10 bucks U.S. dollars, which is not crazy, of course seems to me things are good. Again, that the restaurants are open, they're lively, there's food. I've been to a couple different stores. Never, They're nice. They're stocked. I'd say by U.S. standards, they're nicer than U.S. stores. I don't see the sanctions 
really doing a lot of damage here. The U.S. is pretty much supplying Ukraine with high-tech weapons it needs to hold out against the larger force that is fighting among the Russian military. So uh, what do they think when they talk to you? People are able to distinguish between the government and the people, right? I think Americans are not good at doing that, right? That is to say, if we're at war with a country, they tend to dislike the people of that country. But that's not true in other countries. And so the long and short of it is, if, if someone hears me speaking English and they suss up that I'm a foreigner and even from the U.S., they get excited. They smile. They want a photo. <laughs> I actually made a friend of a family who the little girl of the family heard me speaking English and she's learning English. So she got excited and the whole family came over and we shook hands. And the dad ended up taking me out to dinner and giving me a five mile walking tour of Moscow. People love Americans. When they look at you, they see a person. They don't see the U.S. government. They can make that distinction. That's something I wish Americans would learn better. It's going to be a long, cold, and dark winter in Ukraine. I mean, it sounds like in Moscow, things might be a little, there might be a little belt tightening, but people are going to have a, a the typical warm, comfy Russian winter, but, uh, you know, of a prosperous people. But uh, it's not going to be the same thing in Ukraine for those people. Is, is anybody worried about that? Of course they are. I mean, you know, again, I don't think people here bear ill will towards the Ukrainians. They see them as their brother people. I mean, let's remember that Ukraine, first of all, over time was part of the Russian Empire. It was part of the Soviet Union up until 1991. A lot of people tell me they have family in Ukraine. They don't relish what is happening. I think they understand or believe anyway that this war came to them because of NATO and their conduct and the conduct of the government in Kiev, which has been attacking their brothers and sisters in the Donbass region of Ukraine since 2014. But they don't relish the war or the damage. They would like the war over. People are not going to be celebrating that Ukraine's hurting at all. You know, I'll just give one example. I'm staying in the Arbat district of Moscow, very nice area, Moscow. And on old Arbat Street, which is an amazing street, there's a, actually a, a very big display of pictures of children killed in the Donbass region of Ukraine, a memorial to them. The people here don't bear ill will towards the Ukrainians at all. Are the people in Russia as uh, hearing as directly these, from the U.S. perspective, it, you know, they played up as threats of using nuclear weapons by the Russian side? Are people worried about that at all? They're as worried as anyone. I think the Russian people are used to war and suffering, and that's not to say (laughs) they welcome it, but there's a certain stoicism. But I don't see people panicking, no. Again, Mm -hmm. I'm sure they fear it like the rest of us fear it, but go about their daily lives just like we do. How about Donald Trump? He's supposedly a Russian agent the way they treat him here in the United States, but how do people look at him there? Did you have any discussions about him there? To the extent I talk to people about American politics, the truth is a lot of people hope the Republicans win because they see the Republicans as, frankly, wanting war with Russia less than the, the Democrats. I mean, and, and that may be true. And that, to me, is a sad reality. Democratic Party has become more hawkish than the Republican, at least vis-a-vis Russia, maybe not China. So that's people's opinion for sure. Uh, Donald Trump, per se, I don't think people care about one way or another. He's not president anymore. There's not the obsession with Trump here like in the U.S. 
surprisingly, maybe to some people, Rush was picking up a lot of more international support than you'd get if you just read the New York Times. I mean, a lot of the uh, in the UN, even though it seems like the votes are heavily against Russia, in fact, all those countries that are abstaining are just afraid of the United States. Well, yeah, and they have a strong support in the developing world, you know, in Latin America, Africa, Asia. Of course, look, the world is sick of the United States. Let's be totally honest here. You ask me, oh, are Russian people concerned about that Ukrainians are going to have a bad winter? Well, I would ask, are Americans concerned that the Afghanis are going to have a bad winter because we stole $7 billion of theirs? Or the Yemenis are going to, are they going to have a bad winter because we've been waging war against them through Saudi Arabia for years? You know, the U.S. is the, is the most aggressive country on earth has invaded many countries unilaterally, just left them in shambles, and the world is sick of it. They understand who the bully is here. And and again, I think Americans need to wake up to that. Correspondent Dan Kovalik has been visiting Russia. He spoke with the news this week. The International Climate Conference being held in Egypt and known as COP27, the 27th annual event of its kind, enters its second week Monday, while week one was dominated by the arrival of world leaders, ending with Friday's visit by President Biden, now it's time for the behind-the-scenes work to begin to keep the Paris Agreement's one-and-a-half-degree limit on global warming alive. The host country's human rights record played into the drama last week. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said despite the harsh treatment of tens of thousands of dissidents, the United States and Egypt are still friends. Jimmy Carter, I just heard from him the other day, and I remember the... Uh, the Camp David Accords, which is very important to the security in the region. So we have a good relationship with Egypt, yes. And we had a, a good visit with the president. We ha- we're friends, and friends can be very candid with each other, and we have been. Yeah. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi made no mention of political prisoner Abd el-Fatah, whose sister pleaded for her brother's freedom to the international media last week. And in national news, in the United States, the midterm elections are so close that a final determination of which party controls the House of Representatives may not be known until Wednesday. Already a victory by Democrats in Nevada has ensured continuing Democratic control of the United States Senate. Recriminations have begun between former President Donald Trump and emerging new leaders in the Republican Party, like Ron DeSantis, who was re-elected governor of Florida by 20 points. Already DeSantis has been needled by Trump with a demeaning nickname. We're winning big, big, big in the Republican Party for the nomination like nobody's ever seen before. Let's see, there it is, Trump at 71, Ron DeSanctimonious at 10%, Mike Pence at 7 Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. Since the disastrous showing by Trump-anointed candidates last week, the former president has been attacking conservative news outlets like Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and New York Post. Trump has hinted he'll announce his 2024 run on Tuesday. And finally, as if there isn't enough bad news, construction has been halted at the Obama Presidential Center worksite in Chicago after a noose was discovered. Lakeside Alliance, the construction company behind the center, said they were informed Thursday morning and police were called. A $100,000 reward has been offered to help find anyone responsible. The Obama Foundation said in a statement, This shameless act of cowardice and hate is designed to get attention and divide us. Our priority is protecting the health and safety of our workforce. We have notified authorities who are investigating the incident.
The Jackson Park complex will consist of an athletic center, event center, forum with a restaurant, an auditorium, recording studio, and a Chicago Public Library branch. And that's some of the news for Monday morning, November 14th, 2022. The news was written and produced by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.